it gives me a, a lot of pleasure to introduce Tony Cokes. Um, his work focuses on how visual regimes shape and inhibit our sense of political possibility, how uh, media shapes our sense of being politicized subjects. He is a professor of modern culture and media, and if you're not and you do physics or something like that, I'm so sorry. Um, and uh, his talk will be touching upon at least well, you know, lightly caressing the area of uh, the commodification and the co-option of revolution in this era of political volatility, the resurgence of fascism. Good afternoon. Okay, what I'm gonna be talking about today actually started as a rework of a talk I did about 20 years ago and as I got deeper into the sort of structure and the rehearsal for it, it diverged quite a bit. And um, while I'm into rep repetition, of course, um, it will turn out a little bit differently. I've decided to actually foreground some recent works and some works that aren't on display as part of the festival, if you don't mind. But anyway, my title for today is The Next Revolution, or progress does not exist. Black Celebration 1988 was my first work to directly examine the legacy of the late 1960s, early 70s. The work appropriated newsreel images of urban uprisings in Watts, Boston, Newark, and Detroit. I juxtaposed the footage with an industrial music soundtrack by Skinny Puppy and visual text quotations prominently from the decline and fall of the spectacle commodity economy from Situationist International. Black celebrations sought to represent these historical events from a distant but desiring perspective that would read against the grain of Reagan era amnesia or dismissal. When I made Black Celebration, I was basically pretty pissed off about the previous return revision of the 1960s. Throughout the 1980s, public discourses either denied the political desires and actions of the earlier period as outmoded or superseded by the then booming potential of current free market trickle-down illusionism. In this reduction, the late 60s and early 70s were rebranded as just a look, a sound, a blast of youth, youthful, energetic, though passe fashion. In another more stridently revisionist version, 1960s rebellion and their legacies were cast as a collectivity of isolated, doomed, irrational phenomena. I saw my work then not as a simple corrective, but as a positioned reading of urban insurrections. Specifically, I was interested in the production of counter memories and a detournement, if you will, of the newsreel materials for purposes antithetical to their official original uses. Having said this, however, I also want to be careful to say that it was not my intent to totalize Situationist International's reading of these insurrections. Um, I'm well aware that Black Celebration is not the account of those political events that their participants would construct. There are historical specifics that neither my work nor any of its textual components 
adequately address. My choices, especially with regard to music and text, indicate that this construction takes place at a distance, desiring though it may be, from the events it appears to represent. Some have found the work's insistence on analyzing class and commodity spectacle even offensive and disparaging to an expected foregrounding of race. All I can say is that for me, slavery represents a very clear example of treating human beings as commodities. Much of what Americans regard as popular culture, markers of citizenship, and representations of identity revolve around the various spectacles of black bodies, sports, music, fashion, criminality, comedy, and these relations and representations are foundational, not marginalia, to modern capitalism. Therefore, it's impossible for me to see race, economics, and spectacle as separate, disconnected realms. I believe that the work provides a starting point for a vigorous debate rather than a clear, singular con conclusion. During that period of my life, and to some extent even today, I was fascinated by the problematic of how violence is represented when people, not the state, enact it. At that time, I wrote that I wanted to make a piece about how people make history under conditions constructed to dissuade or exclude their participation in it. I also wanted to put the lie to the illusion that racial violence was a relic of the past. Personally, I saw a connection between a critique of commodity culture and the position of many U.S. Blacks from slavery until the present. Black rebellions are symptoms, the return of the repressed of slavery, that constitutive operation of what we now know as global capitalism. Some may wonder why industrial rock music is in a video referencing 1960s Black struggles. For me, Blackness is both rock's center and its margins. I would contest the notion that punk, industrial, or another rock genre is somehow less imbricated in Blackness than rock's preceding modes. Blackness is constitutive. Blackness, blackness is neither irrelevant nor accidental. Blackness is everywhere. It haunts and it repeats or repeats, then it haunts. Even when blackness is absent, silent, or invisible, it may still frame conditions of possibility for its coded white other, or for future sonic, visual, textural, or material legibilities. Like the soul circulated via black vinyl records that are heard, repeated, then tweaked, and recoded locally, not just in their points of origin, say in Detroit or Memphis or in Chicago, but in Berlin or Kingston or Munich or Johannesburg or in Manchester or Amsterdam. In black music, listening is not passive. It is a distributed productive process or technology. This idea clearly informs the intertextual role that sound performs in my media practice generally, where sound is often deployed in complementary or antagonistic relation to allegedly hegemonic visual or textual elements. For me, sound always encodes labor, desire, history, and other social processes. Therefore, my work is a zone where sound is neither neutral nor natural. 
In my disciplinary and multidisciplinary practices, sound is consistently at work complicating other signifying systems. Quote, for black people, the words daily and historically are synonyms. That's from James Baldwin. The work of Baldwin, critical literary and activist, was a formative influence on my thinking. In the above quote, I think Baldwin means that while forms of racial separation and discrimination may change, the content or latent meaning of white supremacy as an ideology does not change in essential ways. Racism must be questioned and resisted in whatever guise it appropriates. Shrink. It can be considered, quote again, it can be considered one of the methodological objectives of this work to demonstrate a historical materialism within which the idea of progress has been annihilated. Precisely on this point, historical materialism has every reason to distinguish itself from bourgeois mental habits. Its basic principle is not progress, but actualization. And that's from Walter Benjamin. As my work and thought have developed over the last three decades, I've become more deeply and generally skeptical regarding the potentials or the actuality, if you will, of progress. Perhaps my growing skepticism is triggered by the fact that we live in a period when revolutionary rhetoric is not underground, but rather explicitly visible socially. This is especially true in advertising. I read and reflect upon this predicament via Benjamin's Arcades Project and Theses on History as I prepared for an installation work called Shrink. This incomplete project formed the basis and origin for my ongoing evil series that is amply documented by my project at the Stedelijk. But today I'm going to actually show another chapter from it, which is not being shown currently. As I began, I thought that Benjamin's ideas about progress as a social value can help us understand the embrace of revolutionary rhetoric now further coded in terms like the ubiquitous disruption by global technological capital. A central idea from Benjamin I would like you to consider is that technological developments do not transform society as totally as we would like to believe. Benjamin reminds us that the projection of democratic ideals and dreams onto new technologies has happened repeatedly in modern cultural history. In fact, this mythic wish, whether utopian or dystopian, to automatically connect technological change with social transformation could be seen as a definitive modernist trope. However, repeated wishes do not equal truth. This central myth is founded upon a conflation from which Benjamin's work encourages us to awaken. I recall that when someone tries to convince me that technological shifts of means, like telecommuting, email, or the internet, automatically change relations of production. It has been a long time since I believe that any technology is inherently revolutionary. I always like to ask whether the change we see relates to speed or location or the type of activity. And then I ask if that change is truly revolutionary socially or, me or merely heightens the efficiency of the status quo. 
I always rhetorically ask whether capitalism has been destroyed as a result of technological advances, or rather, has capital simply found new areas of human activity to exploit and new, model, and new markets to colonize? A service economy is still an economy with inequalities separating owners, managers, workers, consumers. 24-hour communication access opens the way for round-the-clock labor, regardless of one's physical location. Money is still a means of exchange and reproduces social hierarchies, whether its signs are physical or electronic, and so on. For a recent exhibition installation project, Could You Visit Me in Dreams? I constructed an alternative guide to Vienna, encompassing historical facts, club descriptions, Freud and Kafka anecdotes, current news, and bits of my own writings to offer a diverse, speculative, future view of a city as a site of encounter. The text was presented as a three-channel video installation and simultaneously published as a book under the title The Vienna Guide. Perhaps by returning to a textual form, the work might take a new, more intimate, affective dimension. I'm attracted to producing more folds within my practice and process right now. The idea of redoubling aspects of my work with text and reading protocols across different forms and scales, prints, light boxes, books, has become pleasurable. In producing Could You Visit Me in Dreams, I was struck by the fact that while the form and technique are obviously similar to my ordinary working process, Presenting in printed text format implied a more intimate scale and mode of address than normal. And I find that multiplicity within sameness across media really exciting. I'm also drawn to more public presentation context for my work in future. While content remains related, it travels through space and time and contaminates viewers, readers at different speeds or intensities. It's strange to think about the passage of text and concepts from a website to an electronic file to a video animation into a book or print or a public sighted projection with scale shifts, editorial decisions, and different associations and temporalities recorded in each migratory stage. These shifts are intriguing for me, but I'm still unsure, unsure whether they truly represent progress or even adequately resist the plethora of returns to the proto-fascist nationalisms we seem to be encountering and experiencing globally today. So I'm gonna stop there.